Hello, and welcome to episode number five of An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. In this episode, I want to talk about terrorism and the People's Republic of China. Now, China has been at the top of the headlines and for a number of reasons over the past couple of weeks and months. We here in Canada have been beset by all kinds of stories that are linked to the arrest of the chief financial officer of Huawei, the cell phone manufacturer, in Vancouver in late 2018, and China's subsequent arrest of two Canadians on alleged espionage charges. In fact, just this past week alone, China has accused these Canadians of stealing state secrets. Whether or not that's true seems a little bit hype to me, but it is leading to a real diplomatic back and forth between China and Canada, with Canada, at least a lot of Canadian experts, including two former directors of CSIS, where I used to work, claiming that Canada should not use Huawei for its 5G cell phone network, and China promising all kinds of recriminations and reactions to that. One of the other reasons why China has been on the headlines recently is a request from the Philippines to have an old treaty with the United States put into practice whereby the United States would come to the Philippines' aid in the event of Chinese aggression in the South China Sea. This is a really interesting issue. So in the post-World War II period, the People's Republic of China created what's called the Nine-Dash Map. And the Nine-Dash Map is essentially China's claims on the South China Sea. If you look at the map, it should strike anyone as a very preposterous claim by China that it controls essentially the coastal shores of Vietnam, parts of Malaysia, parts of Indonesia, and the Philippines. And China's been building all kinds of military facilities on reefs that are, for the most part, underwater most of the time. And it has done so in order to basically establish facts on the ground, or in this case, facts in the water, in terms of its territory. But what I want to focus on in this podcast, since this is a podcast on terrorism and not a podcast on geopolitics, is China's counterterrorism policy. It's become quite clear to a lot of people who are reading the news that China has created massive internment camps in the northwestern province of Xinjiang. Now, Xinjiang is traditionally a Muslim part of China. It goes back centuries. It is the home of a group called the Uyghurs. And in response to some events that I'll get to in a couple of minutes, China has decided to essentially clamp down on the Uyghur population. So the Uyghurs do not speak Chinese. They speak a Turkic tongue. They are not ethnically Chinese. But what China has been doing for the past couple of decades is to encourage the migration, in, in migration, of hundreds of thousands of Han Chinese, ethnically Han Chinese people into the area to make it more in keeping with the rest of the country. But what's really worrisome right now is the fact that China has incarcerated, and incarceration is the correct term, upwards of a million Uyghur Muslims in what they are euphemistically calling re-education or retraining camps. And there are reports that are coming out in the West of the conditions that are to be found in those camps, allegations of torture, certainly allegations that the Uyghur culture and language are being eliminated, that people who are in these camps are being forced to express patriotic love for the People's Republic of China, 
denounce their own faith, which is Islam, denounce their own culture, denounce their linguistic heritage, in essence, denouncing themselves as Uyghurs. It's interesting that China has chosen to take this measure because, in essence, there is a terrorism threat to China. And as I discussed in my third book, The Lesser Jihads, there have been a number of terrorist attacks in China over the past couple of years that have been perpetrated by Uyghur Muslims. And I want to just go over a few of those for you. In 2013, 27 people were killed by knife-wielding assailants. Three more were killed in 29, sorry, 79 injured in a knife attack at the Urumqi train station in April of 2014. A knife-wielding gang killed 96 in July 2014 at a police station in Yarkant. And at least 50 were killed in bomb blasts in September 2014. So it's impossible to state that there is not a problem with Uyghur terrorism in China. In fact, Uyghur terrorism has been around for a long time in both northwestern China and actually within Afghanistan as well. In the 1990s, a Uyghur separatist group calling itself the East Turkestan Independence Movement, or ETIM, was created in Afghanistan under the protection of the Taliban, and it threatened tax against China. They are a self-styled separatist group that essentially want to create an Islamic homeland for the Uyghur-speaking Muslims in northwest China. It is estimated as well that upwards of 5,000 Uyghurs may in fact have gone to fight for Islamic State and other terrorist groups in Iraq and Syria. Another terrorist group called the Turkestan Islamic Party which happens to be allied with Hayat Tarih al-Sham, or HTS, an Al-Qaeda-linked group, has been very, very active in the area for quite some time. That means the bottom line is that China does have a real, serious terrorist threat from a small number of Uyghurs who've elected to use violence to make their point. But see, here's the problem. The Chinese response, rather than to carry out counterterrorism investigations into those people who are planning attacks has been to essentially label the entire Uyghur population as part of the problem. And as a result, there are upwards of, as I mentioned before, one million or more Uyghurs who are, in effect, being held in concentration camps, are being brutally treated, and are having their very ethnicity stolen from them. This really begs the question whether or not this is a smart policy for China or any nation to take when it comes to counterterrorism. We saw a bit of an analogy in the West post 9-11. We saw Muslims, Muslim Canadians, Muslim Americans, Muslim Europeans labeled as terrorists because of their faith, their associations. It is probably not too far of a stretch to contend that the recent rise in Islamophobia, the recent rise in nationalist and far-right ideologies in the West is tied in part to the attacks of 9-11 and to the ubiquity of terrorist movements who are Islamist extremists in nature around the world. So what China has essentially done is to take a page out of our book and decide that the only good Uyghur is a Uyghur who doesn't speak Uyghur, who doesn't profess Islam openly, and who tries to blend into the general Chinese population. And that is rarely a very good policy to follow for the simple reason that it ends up incarcerating or 
hurting a lot of very, very innocent people, and in fact could lead to more extremism and terrorism down the road, as people are treated poorly, that creates grievance. And if there's one thing we know about terrorism, is that it's all about grievance. The way that I like to express it is that when it comes to grievance, there's something wrong. I know, I know who's responsible for it, and I have to use violence to right this wrong, to get some kind of a degree of justice or a degree of vengeance. So what China's doing in, in Xinjiang province is creating a whole generation of Uyghur Muslims who see the state as overbearing, who see the state as an enemy, who see the state bent on eliminating their very being as Chinese citizens who happen to be of Uyghur ethnic extraction. And you could argue that, well, the Chinese state is a, a vast state and it may in fact have enough resources to keep a lid on this for quite some time, but we know historically these things tend to fester. Lots of terrorist movements have been around for decades because the original grievances that led to the creation of these terrorist groups in the first place have not been addressed. The Irish problem being a classic problem. As I mentioned in an earlier podcast about the rise of what's called the new IRA in Northern Ireland, a full century after the creation of the original IRA. There's a more worrisome aspect to this Chinese campaign as well in that they don't seem to be limited to striking out against Uyghurs who are living in northwestern China. There are credible reports that they are infiltrating Uyghurs who live in Kazakhstan, which borders on China. And there are credible reports that they have attempted to exert their influence even here in Canada. There was an incident a few weeks back at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, in which a student of Uyghur extraction was giving a talk about the conditions in these so-called re-education camps in Xinjiang province. And she was shouted down by Chinese students in attendance, called a traitor to China and, and told to stop speaking. And I can't prove that, in fact, this is tied to the Chinese government, but it certainly seems that either they were very patriotic students who acted on their own, or they may, in fact, have been put up to it, or at least encouraged to do so by the Chinese embassy here in Ottawa. I do know, having spoken with some Uyghurs here in Canada, that there has been some pressure put brought to bear on Uyghur Canadians to stop talking about the situation in northwestern China, stop besmirching China's reputation, stop calling them concentration camps, and to swallow the Chinese line that these are things that are done for the benefit of the Uyghur people. I think this is tied in in a, in a very general, nebulous kind of way with the so-called Belt Road Initiative that China has been promoting around the world for the past couple of years, where China is exerting its influence economically around the world by building infrastructure in a lot of countries that simply can't afford to do so themselves, building bridges, building uh, all kinds of infrastructure uh, on long-term loans that uh, these countries can't necessarily pay back. Sri Lanka had to hand back a port to China because it couldn't pay back for the construction that had been done. And I think this is all part and parcel of a Chinese effort to exert its influence internationally. I attended a very interesting talk last week here in Ottawa about Chinese influence by a man called John Malakoff, who wrote, has written a book, the, the Claws of the Panda. And he's saying that we really have to be careful when looking at Chinese activities and not see it through the lens of purely economic gain for our country, but to delve down into what is really happening right here. So I don't want to get off track here and talk about China in general, but 
because this is a podcast on terrorism, not a podcast on, on political science. But I do think that China's policy, how it's treating its own Uyghur population, as I said, there is a real terrorism problem, although I don't can't recall a lot of recent terrorist attacks in the PRC. I think the latest big one was back in 2014, although there was a bombing of a Chinese consulate in Pakistan a few months back. I think this is going to come to bite, bite them back in the end. Compounding this, of course, is the so-called foreign fighter phenomenon. If there are, in fact, 5,000 Uyghurs who have fought with Islamic State or Al-Qaeda-linked groups in Syria and Iraq, and there are Uyghurs that have been fighting in Afghanistan since the 1990s, these people could return one day to China, heavily radicalized, trained, and use the concentration camps, use the incarceration of a million of their their co-citizens to justify acts of terrorism in China, in other words, this problem is not going away anytime soon, and China's reaction to how it deals with terrorism is just going to exacerbate the situation. So I would highly advise Chinese authorities to rethink their strategy of what to do with Uyghur citizens, to investigate those who are truly involved in attack planning, to get at those who are radicalizing other Uyghur citizens, and to bring them to justice but by essentially labeling the entire population of northwestern Xinjiang province as a terrorist population, it'll do a lot more bad than good going forward. Which brings me to the featured terrorism attack for this fortnight. And I want to talk about the attack in Kashmir on February the 14th, in which 40 or 41 Indian soldiers were killed by a suicide bomber. And this has developed into a very worrisome scenario. You're probably aware that both Pakistan and India, in fact, do possess nuclear arms. The countries have gone to war since the split in 1947. Kashmir has always been a territory that has been divided between Pakistan and India. Neither side seems to agree on a border for the area. It is a primarily Muslim area. And this particular attack on Valentine's Day of all days led to a counterattack by the Indian Air Force in which they claim to have killed 300 so-called militants in Pakistan. The Pakistanis have denied it. This is really very, very worrisome because of the state of tension between Pakistan and India. Prime Minister Modi is facing an election coming up this year. He has been very, very exuberant in his nationalist speeches of late. He has basically called the bombing that was carried out by the Indian Air Force a test run for something more serious. Pakistan, of course has pledged to retaliate for Indian Indian action on Pakistani soil. What it points to, though, is the fact that the Kashmiri situation has been unsettled for 75 years now, and it is incumbent upon Pakistan and India to figure out a way to resolve this. If not, there'll be more terrorism in Kashmir. There are attacks or planned attacks weekly in Kashmir by Islamist extremists, some of which are sponsored by Pakistan, some of which come from Pakistan. It unbelievably claimed that it has no sponsorship of terrorism in its country. We all know that's false. They've been sponsoring terrorism for a very long time, going back to the 1980s, when the United States enlisted Pakistan to help fight the Soviets in Afghanistan. So the situation in Kashmir appears to be, at least as of today, March the 5th, simmering on the back burner a little bit. But this is a very, very worrisome scenario. You have nationalism in, in, in India. You have Islamist extremism in Pakistan. You have Hindu extremism in India. This is a very dangerous mix. And I really hope that 
in the days and weeks to come, it'll die down a little bit because the firepower and the weaponry that both sides have in India and Pakistan could lead to a very, very dangerous situation. That's it for episode number five of An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. As usual, I would love to hear what you think of the podcast. You can reach me on YouTube where the podcast is being played. You can get a hold of me via email, borealisrisk at gmail.com. You can reach me at Twitter, at borealisaves, on LinkedIn, or on Facebook. Until next time, stay safe. It may sound absurd, but-